welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. As a child, growing up in White Plains, New York, like everybody, my family looked forward to summer vacation. Every year we would rent a house for a week in southern Maine in a small town called Ocean Park. It's about 20 miles south of Portland, in the part of southern Maine that's got sandy beaches. Ocean Park has always been a special place for me. In fact, that's where Janet and I spent our honeymoon back in June of 1978, 45 years ago. One summer, I must have been eight or nine years old, something happened on our way to Maine, something that I will never forget. We couldn't wait to get to Ocean Park. We were one state away in New Hampshire driving on a country road somewhere in the state. Dad was driving our station wagon. And suddenly, he hit the brakes hard. The car right in front of us had stopped. The driver had just hit a young child who was crossing the road. She was lying in a ditch. Soon she was surrounded by grown-ups. Her parents, who lived across the road, heard the sound of the tires screeching and saw what had happened. One of them called for help as the other ran to their daughter. This was back before cell phones. My brother and I, um, he's a little bit older, two years older, we stayed in the back seat of the car the whole time, not really sure what was going on only knowing that something was interrupting our vacation. Finally, the ambulance came and took her away. That's when something happened that I will never forget. My dad, an ordained minister, crossed the road, knocked on the door, and went into the girl's home. Inside, he spoke with the parents and prayed with them for their little girl. He was in there a long time. The girl lived. And for many years later, my parents and her parents wrote letters back and forth to keep in touch. My sister Sally heard Dad say that because we were the first car behind the one in the accident, it could have been us. We were all shaken, but later resumed our drive to Maine and summer vacation. Can I tell you something? I don't remember a thing about our week in Ocean Park. Nothing that year. But I do remember the interruption along the way. We were stopped in our tracks by someone in need, a family in need. And I later came to realize that that was not an interruption. It was a divine appointment. God had put our car, he had put my dad, at that place, at that time, so that he could reach out and wrap his arms around a hurting family. Sometimes our most memorable moments happen when we're interrupted. Same thing with Jesus. Except that he never saw them as interruptions. He saw them as opportunities to bring compassion and healing, to show grace, to show love. 
Heavenly Father, I ask right now that you open our minds and our hearts to you this evening. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and so that we may know your way and your will in our lives. And may my words be your words, Father. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Interruptions. I remember a time not too long ago when I was at the computer trying to write a song for a play when within 10 minutes the doorbell rang, then the phone rang, then the dog appeared at my feet barking like crazy wanting to go out, then the phone again, then I heard the cat in the next room hacking up a hairball. I didn't get a lot of writing done. Turned out the cat was fine. I'm calling tonight's message, Interrupt Me, Please. Interruptions come when we're busy, when we're doing something else, something we might think is more important. But that's not always the most important thing. Let's look at Scripture and what it says about interruptions and how Jesus responded. In Luke 18, starting with verse 35, Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he, Jesus, asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Jesus was walking along the road nearing Jericho, and he saw this blind man crying for help. To us, it might have been an interruption on the road to Jericho, not to Jesus. He stopped, stood still, and helped and healed the man. In Mark 5, starting with verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. Interruption coming. And when he saw him, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies near the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, interruption, and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. I want to park here for a minute. If only I may touch his clothes, if only I may. You know I'm a word guy. If only I may 
shows hope. A respectful willingness to do whatever it takes. It shows joyful anticipation. It shows incredible faith. If only I may touch his clothes. And she reached out to Jesus. So can you. But if only can go the other way too. If only I had touched his clothes. If only I had. You might have said, if only I had done something differently in my life. If only I had. Instead of hope, if only I had, shows regret. If only I had. I often say, live life so that you'll have no regrets. This woman in the crowd had no regrets, only hope and faith. Continuing on into verse 29. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But the disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you and you say, Who touched me? Picture a crowded subway and somebody touches you and, and you wonder who it was. There's this... And Jesus looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Daughter. That kind of loving way to address her, that's, that's Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, one of the foremost theologians in the 1800s, wrote about the woman who reached out to Jesus and was healed by the power that flowed from him. He wrote, Christ was so full of power to bless that the secret virtue even saturated his clothes. It overflowed his blessed person. It ran down to the skirts of his garments. Aye, and it went to that blue hem which every Jew wore round about his dress, that fringe of blue. And it went into that border so that if this woman did but just touch the ravelings of his garment, virtue, healing, would stream into her. If the touch was a touch of faith, it matters not where the contact was. All because she said, if only I may touch his clothes. And continuing with verse 35. While he was still speaking with her, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Remember Jairus, who wanted Jesus to lay hands on his daughter? Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Another interruption, but not one to Jesus. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. 
Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talita kume, which translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Jesus responded immediately. For us, this might have been another interruption, but for Jesus, it was a time of compassion, for listening, for another miracle, raising the child from the dead. People were amazed. Oh, and get the girl something to eat. And don't tell anybody. I think, and this is me, I, I think maybe Jesus wanted people to focus on his message, his message of eternal salvation, and not so much on miracles. If he became known only as a miracle worker, people might have sought him for the wrong reasons. I will say, though, that through healing, through the raising of the dead, comes new life. And when we put our faith in Christ, there is new life. Amen? There was another interruption in Jesus' ministry that again shows his compassion, his putting others before himself. And it came right after the death of John the Baptist. Not a pleasant story. It happened as Jesus' ministry and his followers were growing. Matthew 14, starting with verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Although John the Baptist was not dead yet, but that would come soon. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herod, who was married, had fallen in love with his brother's wife. And the two of them divorced their spouses and got married to each other. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. That's why John was bound and put in prison. And although he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, John the Baptist, as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. This, by the way, was the same Herod as the one in the days leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. There were several Herods in history, but this was the same one. Pilate at first told the chief priests he found no fault in Jesus. When he learned Jesus was a Galilean and was in Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Herod asked Jesus to a lot of questions, and he wanted to see him perform a miracle. But Jesus said nothing. Herod mocked him, put a robe on him, and sent him back to Pilate, where the mob shouted for Jesus to be crucified. Continuing on with verse 13. When Jesus heard it, 
when he heard about the death of John the Baptist. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. No doubt to, to pray and to mourn the death of John the Baptist, his distant cousin and friend. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude. For me, that would be a huge interruption. If I needed to be by myself to pray and mourn, But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw the great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You. Give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Five loaves and two fish. You know, the Lord will take whatever you give him, and he'll multiply it, and he'll use it. And he can do a miracle with it. Notice something here. that He still didn't have time to be by himself and mourn John the Baptist. At least not much time by himself. But he always put others ahead of himself. Which is also exactly what he did on the cross for you and for me. Another interruption came in Matthew 8, and you're familiar with this one. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then the disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Suddenly a great storm arose and the boat was covered with waves. But Jesus was asleep. Keep in mind, fully God, fully man. He was asleep. And his disciples came and woke him up. For me, that would be an interruption. Then he calmed the sea and the disciples marveled. I don't know if you've ever gone fishing in a storm. I have. And it was terrifying. Back in 1985, Jan's dad and I had one free weekend available to go fishing together. We loved fishing. And we drove from New York to Rhode Island to go deep sea fishing on the Super Squirrel, a state-of-the-art big party fishing boat. And while we were driving to Rhode Island, Hurricane Bob was off the coast of North Carolina on the way to New England. We got to Rhode Island at four o'clock in the morning, only to hear the super squirrel captain tell the crowd of 
crazy people, including us, no way I'm going out. There's a hurricane coming. We were disappointed we'd come all that way. That's when the captain of a much smaller boat said, I'll take you out. So we all happily climbed aboard. At the beginning, the ocean was like glass. It was so smooth, so calm. About two hours later, the rain was coming sideways, and the waves were higher than the boat. As the captain, up in the wheelhouse, was laughing maniacally, waves were pouring over the top of the boat, and I thought we were going to die. I prayed that God would watch over Jan and Jen and Steve if we didn't make it. Somehow, after hours of this, we made it back to shore. Didn't catch anything, but it was a successful fishing trip because we survived. You know, every time I read about Jesus calming the storm, I think about that day and our own miracle of making it back to shore and making it back home by the grace of God. It's kind of funny, working on this message about interruptions, I was interrupted so many times by so many things every day. I kept getting interrupted by life. I even got interrupted by death. Don was a longtime co-worker at NBC, but he was so much more than that. He was a mentor to me and so many others, a great storyteller, someone who really cared about people, a real guardian of the truth, a friend of mine for more than 30 years. We'd been, we'd been through a lot together. Don died 10 days ago. The next day, I went to his funeral in Greenwich, Connecticut, at a time that I had planned to be working on this message. During the entire two-hour drive to Greenwich, I prayed the entire way. I thanked God for Don. I prayed for his wife. I prayed for family, friends, for people who I know are hurting. I prayed on and on. I didn't want to stop. And I asked the Lord to help me with this message. He gave me something almost immediately, something I hadn't thought of, something that didn't come from me. Here's what the Lord gave me. Interruptions can change your life. Interruptions can change your life. Take Saul, who persecuted Christians. Acts 9 puts it this way, starting in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, any who were followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Some of the followers of Jesus may have fled Jerusalem after the crucifixion and gone to Damascus. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads were very sharp sticks that a farmer would use while plowing. The farmers would use them to urge a stubborn ox to move. That's where we get the phrase about goading someone on to do something. Well, there's another phrase, stubborn like an ox, stubborn as a mule. The ox would often kick at the goad, the sharp pointy stick, and that would cause pain. The thing was sharp. The ox was stubborn. Jesus may have been saying to Saul, and these are my words, Saul, you're like the ox, and I'm trying to get you to move my way. Stop kicking. Verse 6, So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, but when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul was on the road to Damascus to try to find followers of Christ and arrest them. His plans were interrupted. A bright light. He falls to the ground. Then here's Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know the rest of the story. Jesus appeared to Ananias in a vision and told him to go find Saul in Damascus. Saul, meantime, had a vision that someone named Ananias would lay hands on him and restore his sight. Ananias was concerned about this because all the harm that Saul had done to believers. Moving on, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that Christ is the Son of God. Then all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul, who we know as Paul, traveled and spread the good news about Jesus, enduring much and suffering much for the gospel. He wrote almost half the books in the New Testament and helped lead I don't know how many people to Christ. Millions, billions, 
in the last 2,000 years? Because of his words and because of the testimony of his life. Pastor, author, and Bible teacher Warren Wearsby writes that God had a special work for Saul to do. He says, The Hebrew of the Hebrews would become the apostle to the Gentiles. The persecutor would become a preacher. And the legalistic Pharisee would become the great proclaimer of the grace of God. Up to now, Saul had been like a wild animal fighting against the goads. But now he would become a vessel of honor, the Lord's tool to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. What, what a transformation, huh? All because his journey to Damascus was interrupted. That interruption, interruption changed his life and his eternal life and keeps changing lives today. Pretty amazing, huh? So let's talk about the application of all this because application is scripture in action. When you are bombarded with interruptions, and I'm talking to myself too, when you are bombarded with interruptions, you have two choices. Either you can say to yourself, what I'm doing is more important, you can wait. Or what you're saying, what you're dealing with is more important and I can wait. In Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul writes, the same Paul, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Some translations say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. The Bible says, in this case, you can wait. Put others ahead of yourself. You know the best things you can give to somebody else? Your time. Your undivided attention. Your listening. Your caring. And you know what? The next time you're interrupted, it may be the next time that God is calling on you to be the hands and feet of Jesus and his ears, and his heart, and his caring, and his compassion. It may be God calling on you to wait and consider that other person as more important than yourself. My dad was a minister and a writer and the longtime editor of Christian Herald magazine. He wrote three books, including All Things Considered. He wrote this one in 1977. In it, he actually has a chapter on interruptions. He writes about schedules, deadlines, and timetables that we all deal with. And he uses a line that I keep thinking about. It's here in this graphic, Lenny, thanks. He writes, need does not keep a schedule. Need does not keep a schedule. And of Jesus' miracles, he writes, I can't think of one that wasn't the result of an interruption. It turned out to be a miracle because he stopped, turned aside, listened, paused, felt, wept, 
and so should we. Next time the interruptions won't stop for you, stop and think, what would Jesus do? He would stop what he was doing and listen with caring and compassionate ears and with a heart that overflowed with his love and the love of the Father. No matter what, he would pour out grace. Railroad crossing signs used to say, stop, look, and listen. Remember that? Maybe that's a good guide for the next time you're interrupted. Stop what you're doing. Look into the other person's heart and your own. And just listen. Ask God what What is he trying to teach you at that moment? Maybe it's about patience. Take it to God, then let him do the rest. For one more application, I want to go back to another part of Scripture, to Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana. In John 2, starting with verse 1, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, we don't know who was getting married, but weddings and wedding feasts were a big deal, and they still are. An Israeli wedding banquet could last for a week. And Jesus and his disciples were probably taking it all in, probably having a good time. We don't know. But then the interruption. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. To run out of wine at such an occasion would have been embarrassing to the groom and to the bride. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman was a term of respect and endearment. You'll remember one other time that Jesus called his mother woman when she was at the foot of the cross. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. My hour has not yet come. Suggests that the time for Jesus to start doing miracles and to show himself as the Messiah had not yet come. Continuing on, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Remember that. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. That's 120 gallons. To 180 gallons. Jesus said to them, to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him.
Remember the words of Jesus' mother. Whatever he says to you, do it. That's the best application of all. If you remember just one thing here tonight, let it be this. Whatever he says to you, do it. One more scripture. Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Starting in verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The Hebrew word for tabernacle is mishkan, which means dwelling place. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. So here's the final application. From Jesus' mother, whatever he says to you, do it. And from God himself, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. Listen to him. And do what he says to you to do. So what did Jesus say? Among lots of other things, here are a few. Jesus said, love God. Love one another. Love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He said, you are the light of the world. One thing my dad said about light, light is not something you have. It's something you are. Jesus said, let your light shine. He said, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink or your body or your clothing, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He said, don't judge others. Lay up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Forgive as the Father has forgiven you. Pray. Ask, and it will be given. Build your house on the rock so that in the storms of life it will not fall. He said, he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He said, go and make disciples. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to him. Don't let anything else interrupt him. Don't let anything else interrupt what he is saying to you. Whatever he says to you, do it. Today, tomorrow. Whatever he is saying to you right here tonight, do it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the interruptions that come in our lives and give us an opportunity to show Jesus to others through listening and compassion and helping. I pray that nothing would interrupt Jesus when he is reaching out to us. Let us hear him. Let us do what he tells us to do. Jesus, I pray that maybe there is somebody here tonight or someone watching online who is ready to reach out and touch the hem of your garment and receive you. Right now, all they need to do is pray something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done things that were wrong. Please forgive me. I know that you died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. Come into my heart right now, tonight. Become the leader and the Lord of my life. I want to walk with you all the days ahead and into eternity with you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, the angels are rejoicing. And you know what? So are we. Let one of our pastors know or contact the church at the number at the bottom of your screen. We'll send you a Bible and get you started on your walk with the Lord. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.